Welcome back to another episode of the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JB3. And wow. As I am recording this, I am reflecting on one year since we lost George Floyd to racism, to police brutality, and to murder. And I've really been thinking heavily about the ways that racism is upheld in our systems and the ways that it's reinforced through our systems, because that's that's something to think about, because as I'm preparing for a presentation later this week on implicit bias, it's not an implicit bias training, but it's talking about the ways that institutions maintain bias and it becomes a part of their framework. It becomes a part of the models in which they operate. And to remove it, sure, it starts with beliefs and mindsets, but it's really the policies that we have upheld that allow these things to occur. And so that's just something that's pondering in my mind as the day goes on. But we have a very exciting community of practice episode today. And in thinking about my own experience in the healthcare system, in the 32 years of my life, I have never had a black doctor. I have never had a doctor walk into the office to talk to me about my health that looks like me. And so even in getting older, I recently went to see a cardio specialist. So I wanted to talk to somebody about my heart and there was an Asian man who entered and he asked me, why am I there? He said, you're relatively young, but why are you here today? And I said, you know, well, there are things that are happening in this world that are impacting people who look like me. And I feel like I'm taking on part of that burden and I can feel it in the way that I respond to things. I can feel it as I, I mean, I can't even watch the news anymore because I react and I have health impacts because of the things happening in the world. And I think the concept actually shocked him. And I said, you know, I realize that health is only a, a small percentage of my genetics of the biology. There's so many things that happen socially that predict and impact my health. So I, I've got to be proactive. And so, you know, I'm, I'm still going through that, but that's neither here nor there. But as we approach today's episode, we have three black women doctors who have set out to do some courageous work around equity, around disrupting systemic racism within and outside of the healthcare system. And so I am extremely excited to introduce you all to Dr. McDowell Cherry, Dr. Sabrina Gard and Dr. Jessica Isom. Hi, I'll start. Um, I'm Dr. Sabrina Gard. Uh, James, thank you so much for um, having my colleagues and me on this very important platform. Uh, my name is Sabrina Gard. I'm a board certified internal medicine physician, a primary care doctor uh, specializing in HIV prevention, also treatment, and am blessed to be advancing health equity in the role of uh, chief policy transformation officer uh, for not just a black body. Hi, thank you for having us, James, on the Equity Matters uh, podcast, and I'm really excited about this discussion. I'm Dr. Magdala Sherry. 
Um, I am a New Jersey native. That's where I call home. As far as my background, I'm a board certified internal medicine physician, um, was practicing in academia for a few years before I made a transition to do more um, public health and health policy work. So currently I'm finishing up the Commonwealth Fund Fellowship in Minority Health Policy at Harvard University, um, which I'll be completed um, this year. And we'll see what's next after that. And most recently in the past year, I have been leaning into vulnerability in um, both my professional and personal circles to um, grieve publicly and share my experience in the pandemic, losing both of my parents to COVID-19 in the span of a few weeks. So um, not only sharing my own personal experience and my family's tragedy, I've also been uh, coming together with other colleagues such as um, Dr. Gard and Dr. Isom to talk more about how COVID-19 is an accelerator of the health disparities that we know already exist in our healthcare system. And that is what allowed us to relaunch the Not Just a Black Body campaign, which we're excited to talk about today. Yes, this is Dr. Jessica Isom. Thank you all for starting things off. And thank you, James, for the invitation. I'm a board certified psychiatrist and currently working in Boston, Massachusetts at a federally qualified health center. Um, I call home though, North Carolina. Um, that's where I'm from. And um, what am I currently doing? I'm offering mental health services to a majority black community who's not only struggling with the pandemic of COVID-19, but also systemic racism, which we'll be talking a lot about today. So happy to be here and also to offer some insights as the chief of education for not just a black body. Thank you. Thank you all for the intros. And again, before we start recording, I mentioned just thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, I think it's, it's so critical. We talk about the idea of racial concordance and especially in a time like right now, you, you wanna see faces that you can recognize and that you could you can place and say, I, I can trust you. I mean, I don't wanna jump into like vaccine hesitancy or skepticism depending on which mood I'm in for the day. But again, thank you. So let's start talking about the problem, right? So taking on systemic racism really requires a re-examine of the foundations of healthcare, of social work. I'm in the public health space, but it, it also requires that we look at who we are as a people. So how do we even acknowledge something that people are not ready to really admit about our history? Yeah, I'll start. <laughs> um, from a psychiatry standpoint, a lot of what I witness on the daily in my job is people owning their history, no matter how difficult that history is for them to contend with. Uh, and I start from that point to, to say that the question can sometimes suggest that it's an impossible thing for people to do. However, they're very capable. Uh, and a lot of this work requires us to unfortunately invest and sometimes waste time in building their resilience for having these conversations. Um, so looking back in your history is sort of like a normal thing that people do, except when that history is really challenging and when you have a moral responsibility to do something about it, which is what makes this um, looking back unique. Uh, so what do we say to those who still don't believe it, uh, that it's real? Um, often it's encouraging them to access resources that detail it. And one of the really cool ones that came out recently was cast by Isabel Wil Wilkerson. It's interesting that you, you mentioned that text. My pastor actually referenced it today um, during service, encouraging members to read it. And I think I need to grab it because this is like the second sign. So it's 
it's obviously time for me to get it. I mean, prepare yourself. It's definitely a, um, and I feel like we say this a lot because we're, we're often re-experiencing trauma by looking at our own history and the history of our oppressor. But this is just, I mean, it's, it's heartbreakingly beautiful how it's detailed and it puts things into context, not only our racial oppression as black people, but also racial oppression across the globe and how our specific racial oppression in the United States informed, educated, modeled for other forms of oppression across the country. That's how severe um, it was. It was a role model for others. Dr. Sherry or Dr. Gart, anything you wanna to add to those pieces? I mean, yeah, I think I've heard the same thing about the book. Um, I actually have, <laughs> while you said that, I looked at it on my bookshelf because I recently purchased the book myself. Um, the only thing I'll add is uh, what we also have to reckon with in this country is also our, um, our repetitive nature to whitewash our history and the truth. And if we're really going to seize this moment and move forward um envisioning a future we have not experienced and seen before we're gonna have to lay it all bare and we're, we're gonna have to actually like just be open with reflipping over rocks and things that we did going to the corners we didn't want to go to and looking at our history in its whole totality and quite often even myself as a person who identifies as a black woman I find myself often going back and relearning things like wow I didn't learn it that way or that's not the way it was brought up to me um, so if I can say that as a black woman um, anybody can say that the fact that, that we're always learning and we have to be okay with always asking questions, always questioning who has just delivered this history to me? Where is it coming from and what's their agenda? Because just to call it history is one thing, but we have to really be um, cognizant of the source and really making sure we're looking at all the facts and the truth. I could not agree with that anymore, um, Dr. Sherry. Uh, I think you hit on a point that um, really resonated with me and that has to do with the fact that a lot of our history is whitewashed and sanitized. Um, and what you mentioned about being okay with questioning where you're getting your information, what may the agenda have been of you know, the system or the person that was delivering you that information um, so that you can decide for yourself whether you need to um, seek education elsewhere um, or improve um, or build on what it is you've been taught. Um, I think part of what holds us back is, um, as a society, is our inability to really sit with discomfort. Um, you know, when it comes to recognizing that white supremacy is at the core of a lot of what Black people um, in this country are suffering from. The ones that have the power to do something about it need to reckon with the discomfort. That is the truth of this country. That is the truth of the many systems that have been built in this country. But if folks are not even willing to be uncomfortable, to turn over that rock and to see what else is under there, what may have been missed, and what is contributing to the, the lack of health in, in many communities and specifically black communities, um, then I don't think we're gonna get anywhere.
let's let's jump all the way ahead, right? From sitting with your discomfort to to acting to actually doing something, and with COVID nineteen in particular, it's definitely brought more attention to racial disparities. But how have you seen organizations or institutions, government included, act as part of addressing those racial disparities? And and I'm not talking like just task forces because those drive me crazy. But what are people actually doing? I can start. Um... I think one thing that has caught my attention has been um, coming from the, the healthcare medical side of things has really been um, to see the movement of medical students and trainees. So what do I mean by that? I think in the early parts of the pandemic, as everything was going so fast, and then shortly after between, you know, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, um, students and trainees like were not okay with silence from their institutions. And I make it a point to make sure we emphasize their impact because many people can look at a lot of doctors now who have taken to Twitter and social media to be proactive and vocal. But a lot of that came from pressure from students and trainees who not only said, you know what, this is a public health crisis. This is just as important as this learning medical knowledge but they also held a lens and a mirror to their institutions. So many, and as a person who was, for, was previously in academia, many students actually you know, held, created groups, went to their institutional boards to say, listen, XYZ is happening here. And if you're wondering how racism persists in, health, in, in, in healthcare, look at how we're trained. Look at some of the faculty that are training us in the way that they treat patients. Look at how you lack diversity. Look at how you your mission statement is actually not translating into your actions. And I think that has been the most impressive and thing that has kept me hopeful about this conversation about how we address, how we name and address racism in healthcare has been to see so many um, young trainees step up and say, well, we're gonna hold pressure. And, I, and that pressure quite honestly is what has forced a lot of institutions, hospitals um, and organizations to say, okay, we have to do something. They may not have the answers. I can't say that I agree with everything being done, but I, I'm quite moved and find it very impactful how much medical students, residents, interns have been able to you know, jump up in arms and say, no, this has to be done and we're demanding change. I second that. I could not agree more with that sentiment as somebody that is still um, in academia. I still work at an academic medical facility um, and engage with medical students, with medical residents. That energy um, is there and has always been there. So um, part of what I remember from uh, the beginning of the pandemic and um, particularly after uh, the murder of George Floyd, uh, medical students um, really put the pressure on the leadership at the institution that I currently work in um, and had a list of demands. And when I'm telling you, I looked at that list and I was just like, whew, you know, I, I can't wait to see how, um, how leadership responds to this um, because there's no way, especially um, in the middle of, um, you know, the most deadly, um, you know, infectious pandemic um, in our lifetimes, 
um, and also with a lens on the, the public lynchings of um, Black and other minoritized bodies on social media, on television, um, I really wanted to see how um, leadership responded um, to the medical students. And while it hasn't been as fast as I would like, because I've grown, I realized how much I've grown impatient um, when it comes to the changes that I'd like to see. Uh, are, the leadership has certainly, um, the pressure was definitely put on leadership to respond. Um, giving a specific example was the, you know, how we calculate um, renal function, how we calculate how well someone's kidney is working based on blood tests that they have. There was um, something called uh, a race correction where uh, folks that were um, identified as black, whoever identified them as such, um, were, they, were, they were given a different result um, or a different result was considered um, for them in terms of how well their kidneys are working and how that impacted health down the line is they were being they weren't being referred to um, kidney specialty services as quickly as they would have been if that correction was not applied. They were being, um, you know, they were less likely to be considered for kidney transplant if that, that was something that they needed. So this was something very specific that the students had um, asked that leadership change. And, um, and certainly uh, it took a few months, but uh, that's something that was, was changed. And I think it really did have a lot to do with the fact that the students put pressure on leadership to do so. So I could not be prouder to um, be in community um, and just proximity with uh, medical students and um, other medical trainees uh, during this time. Yeah, and I'll just add to build on that. That I just wonder the historical arc of all of this because, and this is what makes me want to take a break from my multiple jobs and just sit down and read some history books. Because I imagine if we knew our real history, specifically around people who um, were resistant to the status quo and wanted to change things, how much we'd be inspired by stories just like the one that Dr. Gard just told that happened 20, 30, 50, 100 years ago. And I've been in conversations with some of the self-identified activists in medicine, and you know, which is a lot different than, than advocates. And one of the things that we talked about was the fact that we are not told about these revolutionary uh, ideas and actions that people engaged in. Um, like for example, the, the young lords in New York who took over a hospital. I mean, could you imagine myself, Dr. Gard, Dr. Cherry taking over a hospital? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I kind of can actually. 100%, I can actually, <laughs> I actually can see it. I can see it. I'm ready, guys. <laughs> let's go, let's go. No, you're right, Jess. Um, Dr. Jessica, sorry. Um, you're absolutely right. I think um, when we, especially, you know, when you see kind of like the twinkle in the eye of a trainee when you tell them um, about, you know, something his, or as historic as uh, the takeover of, was it, Link, was it Lincoln Hospital? Uh, by the Young Lords. Um, um, and how that was 
uh, critical, how that was the catalyst to the creation of a patient bill of rights that, you know, every hospital is required to, you know, um, have and um, inform their patients of to this day. Uh, this is this is our history, right? Our history is that of um, of resistance and of action, um, action and resistance that has consistently um, and systematically been stifled along the way. Um, of course, so we shouldn't forget that. But but this is this is our history, and um, this is the history that will motivate um, you know older folks, younger folks to to really put, um, you know, put skin in the game and um, really feel that the actions that we can take will actually make a difference. Um, it's just, it's great to know that stuff. And I wish that, um, that more trainees uh, knew about it. I wish that was part of curriculum. And they don't want it to be Dr. Gard because at this point in programs, they're so oppressive that they have us afraid of even talking for fear of retaliation, let alone using our physical bodies to take over a space that technically belongs to us, um, but on paper belongs to some, you know, old um, white guy. Um, so <laughs> a lot of the conversation is around like, oh my God, I'm afraid to put something on in a feedback form during residency. And I think it's because we don't know those stories of people who were brave, courageous, didn't give a damn because the, you know, the stakes were just so high. And this last like year and a half has really illustrated that the stakes are higher than ever before. And that's where I think some of this bravery and courage is coming from, because it's surely not coming from uh, program training directors. Exactly. And I think what I want to add um, to everything that was said to you, especially what you just mentioned, Dr. Jess, is um, one of the questions, I don't know if you guys have gotten it, that I've gotten several times from people who are not in the healthcare field, especially after last year is, man, was healthcare always that bad? And <laughs> without pause, I go, absolutely, absolutely. And anyone who's currently in the system who has two functioning eyes and even dares to speak truth will tell you that, that, that it's, that's actually fact. The question is, what you should be asking is, how oppressive is the system that you guys have never had a chance to talk about it? Or those who have been talking about it have been silenced? That's the real question. It's not how long has this been happening? Did these racial disparities just happen in the pandemic? That Those are no longer the questions. The question really has to say, if someone's really looking at it in its totality would be to step back and say, man, how pervasive and oppressive is this system that even those on the inside can't speak to what's actually happening. And a perfect example of this was anyone who goes back to the early parts of the pandemic, like from early February to April, the amount of healthcare workers who were getting fired for raising the sound and, and the alarm on the fact that they didn't have PPE, on the fact that they saw the disparities of who was dying and who was surviving from COVID and how they were actually being silenced by their administration, by their institutions, by their hospitals for telling the truth. That, that should be the first clue as to as, as for the outside world to understand how oppressive the inside world is and how this has to be the time where we really have to apply pressure for change. Yeah, I could not agree. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I think in, at the end of the day, these systems um, exist to protect themselves. Um, and and I mean, and this is generally speaking, I feel that way literally about every, you know, single, yes, the, the healthcare system, 
um, and you know, in any other system that we can name, they exist to um, to protect themselves and not necessarily to protect um, the folks that they're supposed to serve. Right, uh, policing being another good um, being another good example of that. Um, but you're right. You know, how oppressive does this is the system really? Um, you know, where the folks that are working in the system and are being harmed by it. Um, are, are still, you know, are, are afraid to actually use their voice um, to, to speak out on it. Um, and the answer is it's, you know, it's crazy. Uh, it's crazy oppressive, right? Um, and, you know, that act of silencing is not necessarily um, an email or, you know, a look that says, you know, you shouldn't be speaking this way. You know, sometimes it is, you know, being inundated with, um, you know, with, with tasks, being inundated with work, being exhausted, um, being worked to, um, you know, to the bone, um, emotionally even, um, to where you don't even have the energy um, to speak up and speak out against, um, you know, not just maybe your own personal oppression in your workplace, but also, you know, how that oppression translates to you know, the folks that, that you're caring for, it's insane. It's amazing to me how these things parallel, right? And thinking about my own social work education, the things that I, I was not told and doing my own research and finding out about all of these black and brown, not formally called social workers who were doing activist and advocacy work. And it's like, where was this in my formal instruction? And it really goes to shape what you believe to be is and isn't. And it's unfortunate that the more I talk to folks, the more I realize like all of these systems as, as you described were built in a way that took away part of like so much great work and also just keeps it out. And you're like left on your own to go find it. But when you do find it, it's like that, that light bulb goes off and it's like, oh no, we have to take a few steps back because now that I know my history, I, I have to function in a different way. Yeah, and and also when I think about you know what y'all are saying with respect to um, what we've all said when it comes to learning and you know being that person that decides to seek out more, right? I I think we one of the questions that I, that always kind of sat with me is like if you take the entire population, right, what proportion of the entirety of the population are folks that just have that, um, that instinct to, to dive deeper? Um, because I would imagine that it's not the majority, um, you know, that it takes uh, some, like that it's some small percentage of the population that that dig deeper. And when we do learn more, it's like, you know, how do we recruit other, how do we recruit people to, um, you know, to our side, uh, to the to the side of, you know, forever learners and, you know, to the side of not just accepting things that we're told, but actually, you know, really trying to figure things out because a lot of the, um, the information that we need to know is not going to just be readily available for us. Um, that's always something that kind of stings to think about because, yeah, you, you find, 
you know, a, you have a few folks that are enlightened, right? If we're going to use that term, um, but then, but what what happens next is that's always the hardest part. Um, and when it's not a huge majority of folks that, you know, um, that are there, it's very easy to uh, for those folks to be silenced and and stifled because um, they tend to be in the in the minority. Yeah, Dr. Gar, and it it brings up for me how much we're not taught to be able to recognize and respond to resistance. Because essentially, I, for me, last year was an external way outside of an individual beyond the people who were murdered. Uh, it was an external way of overcoming a large swath of our populations, not our, but their population's resistance, namely the white majority who own power and influence to change systems in the ways that we need that to happen. Their, over their resistance was overcome by the death of not just those who were murdered by police, but also those who've lost their lives throughout the pandemic. And the fact that it takes that to shake people enough to say, hmm, maybe I'm gonna open myself up to feedback or maybe I'm gonna open myself up to reading a book or maybe I'm gonna open myself up to considering that, that we could be doing things in a different kind of way. That's very sad because as we're over here as the quote unquote enlightened, trying to figure out how to plot to convince and compel others to join us, um, it, it's sort of disappointing and also horrifying that maybe what's necessary is more black death to get more people on our team. I, I don't want that to be the reality, um, but that's one of the lessons that I feel was learned um, in the past year that more of our own community's death is necessary to add members to our team. It's horrifying. And, yeah, and at the cost of our trauma too, right? So let's, if we're gonna get really candid about it, <laughs> Dr. Jess, Absolutely. it's not just the people who we watch get murdered. It's the fact that we had to have a video of someone actively being murdered Talk about for, for nine minutes, right? For us to finally say something, are we forgetting that someone could not go to sleep and wake up the next day and still be alive when we're talking about Breonna Taylor or the fact that someone can't go for a run and actually is like executed, but that wasn't, which also still had a video, but that wasn't enough. You had to witness someone actively die. And, and, and then now we're going through this trauma as we're dying in the hospitals, we're dying when we run, we die in our homes. We die we, in our cars. We die in our cars. You have to watch someone's knee on your neck, which, I, <laughs> which is probably the, the, the best example of where we are in society. Because if you even think about that imagery, someone's knees on our neck, they can't breathe while a virus is taking away our ability to breathe in the hospital and people are choosing not to care. And for anyone who's worked in this pandemic and has watched, it is probably the hardest thing to, to, to witness. And I saw this with my own father to see someone gasping for air and struggling to breathe. So not only is that happening, um, someone's knee is on someone's neck. And then I think people always forget the rest of the image. There are other cops standing next to that person and not intervening. Um, if we really if we're really going to talk about it, right, right, right. like if we're really going to talk about it, and even and I and I might be crossing over um, some bounds here, but even if you think about the nationality of the person standing as a person who's Asian, if we're going to talk about the whole context of where we are in our country and the dialogue we refuse to have, and it took all of that 
to happen, including the ongoing perpetual trauma that continues as this trial is happening, for us to finally decide we're gonna think about doing something, not actually do something, but think about it, how exhausting is that? And I, and I, and I, I feel like people are just are not talking about that enough. That, that, is, that is so exhausting that it almost is dis, it's discouraging because it took all that piece of visible evidence Imagine all the other things happening where we can't even give proof, so to speak, about, and you're like, I don't even know how I could bring this up because they're going to ask me, where's the video? Where's the proof? When you know it's happening, it's extremely exhausting to wake up and know that that is part of the charge every single day. Exhausting indeed. I'm, I'm actually fighting the urge where the way that we're recording this episode right now, um, is on um, on a web platform where you know you can mute your mic, and I'm while you're talking, Mag Maggie, I'm like, I'm I think I'm on Clubhouse, and I'm like flashing my mic like as a sign of applause. <laughs> I'm like, where are the emotions for this podcast? <laughs> I'm flashing my mic. I'm just like, oh, this is not Clubhouse. Okay, um, but uh, it's it's the exhaustion for me, you know. Um, that really it hits me when um when i think about it and you know it hits me even um even more when when you bring it up um the level of exhaustion and i think about who i was before the pandemic and um who i became because of the pandemic um and i think of this um I, the word patience comes to mind, like, you know, patience, waiting, stillness, like, um, you know, it just, my entire life has been um, constantly kind of um, like hurdle after hurdle. Um, but the way that you keep going, because you know, at some point, like there's going to be like, there's like a light at the end of the tunnel, right? We could talk about, you know, college education and then, you know, med school, however hard that was and however hard residency is like, you know, it's hell, um, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel. So you know that you just have to bear it for a little bit longer and you're going to cross that threshold where it's not going to be this way anymore. Um, and that is, I think that was like a unique skill of mine, like not unique as, as, as if nobody else has that, um, has that quality, but it was like, um, it's something that I needed. That was like what I needed to kind of be resilient because I, I would focus on, you know, what's the, what's the light at the, where is the light at the end of the tunnel? Um, so who I was before the pandemic was very much like, okay, you know, like this, this sucks. You know, like there's a lot going on that needs to change. There are policies that, you know, um, that I think need to be, you know, overhauled um, because I think it leads to, you know, downstream, it, it leads to harm um, that, you know, may not necessarily be super tangible to someone who's not directly affected by that harm, um, but, but it's harm nonetheless. Um, but I was always kind of hoping that, you know, just a little, a little more effort on my part, you know, like maybe I just, maybe we just need to convince like one or two more people and maybe we need to, you know, get closer to, you know, to, to more people in leadership so that, you know, and that's a seat at the table. That's another kind of term that comes to mind. Like, you know, like if I can just get a seat at the table, um, then I will be in proximity to folks 
who have the power to make the changes that are necessary um, to actually affect real change when it comes to, um, to the health of, of the folks that we take care of. Um, and after, during the pandemic, I realized that you know, damn with all that waiting mess, right? Like I'm, I'm tired of waiting. Um, there's no, waiting has never, you know, has only gotten us, you know, has only pushed us forward ever so slowly. And when it, it's literally the difference between life and death, I don't think that's something that we should wait around and cross our fingers and pray that, you know, folks will come around and just be able to see the humanity in black people um, where the, you can see that suffering because of um, policy, institutional policies uh, that they've been subjected to um, are negatively impacting them. And it was the pandemic that made me just say like, I, I just don't have it in me anymore to, to wait, like, like kind of like my skin was crawling. Um, so, it's, you know, I look back at it and I'm just like, you know, could I have come to this conclusion before? And, you know, I was just, I felt like I was exhausted all the time. And it wasn't until like, you know, there's nothing else except watching this. That's like, nah, like, like we can't, I can't wait anymore. I won't wait anymore. This is Dr. Ice, I'm, I'm just speechless and also clapping and, I mean, the one thing I'll add is that the expectation also that I felt for the bare minimum from so many people in positions of power and influence is that despite me personally not being a baker, that I'm supposed to be churning out ally cookies 24-7 for the bare minimum, bare minimum including just listening to conversations about racial injustice and oppression, literally just opening their ears and listening deserves mm. a cookie, let alone what, you know, other things such as tweeting or hashtags or all these shared Black boxes. I'm like, I, I, you want me to fight <laughs> oppression and bake cookies for y'all? Um, so the, the whole patience thing, Dr. Gar, for me, just reminds me of how much patience has been required to a lot of times coddle people in their development of a critical consciousness about the way the world actually operates and then slowly develop for some and, and more fast for others, actions, like actual behaviors to address the problem. Uh, and if you're not careful enough, if you're not gentle enough, if you're the mean black woman, uh, people will say, well, you know, you're not reciprocal or, which is a, a very common, uh, comment from certain communities. You haven't reciprocated the same thing I've been giving to you, so I'm not going to do the work anymore. Or they'll, they'll say that you're ungrateful. Uh, and these are things I've actually heard from people who are supposedly quote-unquote allies. So it's really painful um, working alongside people who are not really in it to be in it. They're in it for recognition and really have rules around the way that you engage with them for their continued engagement in the cause. Like, what is this world? Yeah, Dr. Jess, you just, I mean, ooh. I think I'm flashing my mic, I'm flashing my mic. Um, you know, one of the things that is important with this work, I mean, whether you're taking the title of this podcast, which is Equity Matters, or talking about, um, you know, systemic racism and how we fight it, the first thing that needs to happen is a reckon with yourself. And my biggest problem 
that I've been encountering as I talk to different people from different communities is this idea that they can rush to quote unquote, be part of the solution without some self-reflection work on themselves. And it's, it's insulting, it's exhausting. Um, it's exactly how we're gonna end up in the same place. And the thing that I am, I have to quite often just keep saying to people is how do you make it through life with no emotional intelligence, no self-reflection? <laughs> like I, I'm really trying to understand because to me that I, I didn't have the privilege of existing in that type of world. Right, I'm this black woman who had, you know, is tall. God forbid, I put some heels on. My hair is big. I am quite aware of how just the mere existence of looking at me before I speak, people see me as a threat, and I have to be so cognizant of that. If if it's not about me and the work that I do is about the message, I have to constantly figure out how do I use a different word to get to the same place. How do I rally people together? How do I bridge community even with people who don't see my humanity so we can get this work done? There is always this self-reflection, emotional intelligence, inner work that is happening so I can just merely exist and survive and continue fighting for the community that needs me to speak up, not only as their doctor, but as another Black woman who's seeing other people die, right? You, this is an ongoing thing. And to have people who think they can join this fight, who think they can be a part of this and really champion equity and anti-racism, but refuse to look at themselves. I, I, I don't understand, like, how is that a thing? And then they get insulted when you're like, yeah, it's not about you putting a hashtag. It's not about you putting a picture or a tweet. It's actually you sitting with yourself and acknowledging your shortcomings, acknowledging your racist lens, acknowledging your sexist lens, acknowledging all your isms. Because guess what? If I'm a black woman and I'm capable of having them, so do you. And the fact that people think you can do this work and you can step in and get a badge without actually doing the self work is beyond me. And that's also what I find extremely exhausting in this fight. Oh Lord. It's the emotional contortion that you mentioned um, is something that's so real for folks like um, for folks like you, um, Dr. Sherry, for myself, for Dr. Jessica, um, who all we've all been in this position um, where, where we do have to acknowledge that we're that we're privileged. Um, but to be in this position um, and to be, you know, surrounded by folks that, you know, maybe don't even see the humanity in us beyond, um, you know, where how far we were able to get in school, um, is is exhausting. Um, you know, to be in a space like that, to be in a space like that all the time, um, and we mentioned earlier that. This is the type of work uh, that is necessary um, and it's necessary for our survival. Um, so we do this because it's important, um, but also, you know, our survival depends on it. So that's another, that's another layer. So when your survival does not depend on, um, you know, on anti, on anti-racist activism, you know, it's a it's a privilege to be able to kind of to turn it off, 
to, you know, to kick your legs up and say, you know, I'll, I'll deal with that later. I've got other things to do. I too, um, you know, want to be able to, you know, do those other things that are on my list, but um, this has to take priority because if it doesn't, we die. Um, and I think that that's something that's really, really hard to get across um, and also a necessary ingredient. Um, unfortunate, like it's, it's unfortunately like a necessary ingredient that you're, um, you know, being extra invested because, you know, your, your, maybe your individual personal survival, the survival of, you know, your family members, the survival of, you know, generations in your lineage to come, um, that if you don't do this now, what's it going to be like, you know, what's it going to be like for, you know, your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, um, all of these people that you love now, all of the people that you'll love in the future. So I think one thing that um, I think is really um, important for me to always get across is that um, I really would love to live in a world where we all can acknowledge and recognize the humanity in another person that doesn't look like you and you, can, and you want better for them because you also want better for you. Um, and if it's not good for them, it can't be good for you, right? We're not free until we're all free um, kind of mindset. So um, yeah, it's rough. You've talked about what medical students have been able to do using their, their power um, addressing institutions, right? I don't want to make it seem like doctors don't have a role, like medical professionals working within hospitals or working within federally qualified health centers. How would you describe their specific role in addressing health disparities and inequities? It really depends. I mean, there's a there's a wealth of opportunities out there and not everyone is one, seeing them as opportunities and two, taking risk and actually <laughs> embracing them as opportunities when they do come. And I'll say for myself, fortunately, uh, White Guilt has produced funding for activities that historically funding would have been absent for. And Lord knows, I don't know who's gonna listen to this episode, but <laughs> I'll just say, yes, <laughs> there's some philanthropy uh, that I conceptualize as being rooted in white guilt that has been able to support efforts for me as an early career um, psychiatrist to do something. And again, I can't generate my own income to do this work because I'm still using my income to pay back the debt that I shouldn't have in the first place. <laughs> on it. Come on, come on. <laughs> um, I have an anti-racism grant and I, and I don't, I haven't Googled to see if anti-racism grants existed before the murder of people and the loss of lives um, to this pandemic, maybe it's a it's a 2020 thing, but- They did not. <laughs> <laughs> That's a car. It's Sorry, new. I just, I, <laughs> I did my research. They did not. So it's new, right? And it's an anti-racism grant specifically around opioid use disorders. So, and the story of this grant's creation really is an organization that had dedicated themselves to doing something about the opioid epidemic 
but they had done it in a very flattened way, which means they hadn't really thought about the textured experiences of addiction based on race and class and a number of other things. So when they came across this research that showed that the experiences of non-whites were different, they said, okay, well, let's, let's create this grant and let's do something about it. So I um, got the design phase of that and we just applied for the implementation phase, which is a lot of, a lot of money. Uh, and I think we, we, I hope we'll actually get it, but that is allowing me, you know, as an early career person in a context that is open to self-examination, which is key. So this little bit of a utopian experience actually do things like an assessment of staff and their competencies in anti-racism. I mean, I literally got to create a, a, a survey that asked them definitions of terms like racial equity, racial justice, uh, racial uh, stereotype threat, ask them about their organizational policies and practices. I mean, that is something that's unheard of for me before I you know, got this grant, because back in the day, I struggled just to have conversations about race, let alone racism. Um, so I think one, our position as physicians does open us up to opportunities and things of that nature, but two, really the timing of what happened has allowed us to have entirely different conversations. And I'm sure Dr. Gard and Dr. Cherry can attest to that and the kind of work it allows us to do now with white guilt's money, um, which will largely be pretty impactful if if their gaze and attention is still focused on racial oppression, which who knows could change in 2022. Um, but I am hopeful at this time in my current context um, that I as a physician can do so much more with funding. Um, but I will say also, there's so many things we can do outside of, uh, outside of money by just showing up and speaking and using our voices. And we've done that with not just the black body um, by just opening up spaces on platforms like Clubhouse and other places. And I'll, you know, pass the mic for other comments. Oh, Dr. Jessica. Dr. Jessica is always leaving me speechless. <laughs> um, but I will add uh, that to your question about what is the role beyond, you know, um, beyond the medical student and the trainee, um, us as, um, as faculty, right, out of training, um, I am relatively early um, in my in my post training career, um, certainly, well, I guess it's not really anymore. Um, like like five years out from uh, from training, but um, it's so important for the folks that the medical students are learning from to be on the same page with them when it comes to. Um, anti-racist activism and constantly um, questioning and interrogating how racism is operating within the system um, that we're practicing in. Because the students um, and the early trainees are amazing. I can't overstate that point at all. Um, and when they graduate from their said medical schools and they're redistributed all over the country, um, you know, into big cities, small towns, so on and so forth, they're going to be um, they're going to be amongst folks, amongst faculty that they that may not be on the same page with them, and they're no longer in that you know, medical school class that um, was able to, you know, galvanize an entire medical school and um, 
you know, and, and hospital system to, to get the work done, right? To be ashamed with how they've been contributing to, um, to racist outcomes um, or, you know, to racist policies that lead to uh, disparate outcomes, I should say. Um, so if, if we as, as faculty, as leaders, as educators are not um, looking inward and seeing how, um, how we're contributing to all of this mess, right? If we're not willing to be uncomfortable with, um, you know, our um, our being, com you know, our complicity in um, in things that have been going on for as long as we've been training and beyond, um, then the medical students will be learning. You know, will continue to learn from folks who are just not with it, and maybe maybe they'll continue to do the work. Um, or maybe they'll be exhausted into submission like a lot of us were. Um, and, and I think that's what our, our role is, is to be, okay, be comfortable with being uncomfortable, actually seeking out, um, you know, seeking out how we can be better constantly um, so that their efforts are not um, in vain. I think that's gonna be really important for us in the field of medicine in general. Yeah, I agree with what Dr. Jessica and Dr. Sabrina have mentioned. Um, what I'll add to this question in regards to what can practicing physicians um, and attendings who are in this in the system do and what their responsibility is, I think a couple of things run in, run in my head. Um, the first is the acknowledgement that if you're not actively fighting against racism, you are part of the problem. It really like doesn't get more simple than that. Um, I've seen a lot of colleagues who say, well, you know, I'm not racist. And we've seen popular podcasts uh, try to debunk the idea of systemic racism in healthcare. Um, Jamma, 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 Journal of, come on now, Jamma. Naming them uh, and others too who are hiding in the outskirts, um, but have been publishing very questionable articles as of late um, that really make you question it. If you are not actively, if you don't recognize that if you, you have to be actively fighting against racism, if you are not actively fighting against racism, you are part of the problem. And with that, the next point that I'll make is this is a long game. So this idea, which I've seen from a lot of colleagues to rush and have a hashtag or rush to feel like they're part of a solution because they're part of a grant or whatever it may be, thinking that this is gonna be the answer, then you're also part of the problem. You're also not recognizing your responsibility because it's a long game. This is decades and centuries of, of harm. So recognizing that means it's gonna take just as much work. It's not impossible, but it's going to take endurance and a lot of angles to get this actually done. And my next thing is going to be it's not a solo gig. So I've seen a lot of people feel like because they have it on their Twitter or they're socially active or they put up a post um, that they think they're doing something. And, and don't get me wrong, I appreciate that people are being outspoken and actually saying stuff, but you work in confines to your institution. So and you know you're limited in your power. So having you put up a post or post or walk outside and protest is cute. But if you haven't stepped into protesting and speaking out in the faculty meeting, in the board meeting, if you see them in the policy, girl. then I would rather you not protest. 
I'd actually rather you not waste my time. I'd rather you have not a, seat. have a seat. I have a seat. Please. For you. I have you several have seats. <laughs> so this idea that people want to exonerate themselves because they so they've they've taken up the gamut in a solo endeavor to have a hashtag and speak against racism, like excuses them from what their institution is doing, I think is also um, trash, <laughs> for lack of a better word. And really you have, and, and a lot of us have to re-examine ourselves for that. Um, another thing I've seen is also people assuming that this is an outside problem and not witnessing that it's also an inside out problem. This work and your responsibility is just as important for you to address racism inside of medicine, inside of healthcare, like many of my colleagues here on this podcast have, have witnessed ourselves, have seen our colleagues witness to the point where it's driving them out of academia, it's driving them out of institutions, it's making leaving. them leave, leave the profession. Them. Exactly, leave the profession. So it's not just, oh, I'm gonna fight racism so I can make a difference in vulnerable communities so I can wear a badge of honor and feel good about myself. It's also, how are you fighting racism in medicine, racism in healthcare, racism in leadership? that happens day in and day out, especially for the black doctor, the black female doctor in particular as well. So a lot of times people keep dismissing that and thinking that this is a one-time a one-time thing. There's so many other steps. And my last point is gonna be racism kills. It's really that simple. Just like if you were watching a, um, if you were watching a, uh, if you know a medication could be deadly, um, quite often in our EMR system, our electronic medical records, if someone has an allergy, it pops up as an alert. So you don't miss it. So you know it, so you see it. Racism needs to be thought of just that way. But you see a person and based on their race, they'd be perceived as a threat and not cared for. It should, it should literally pop up in your mind as you're caring for patients of color that you are so aware of your biases, so aware of the things ingrained in you that it should be internal and outward alert that you have to be cognizant of how you may fall short in treating this patient, which may lead to their death. And until people get those points ingrained in them, then you're not living up to your responsibility to actually care for people um, and care for the most vulnerable. I think we could drop one of Clues bombs. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> what do I say? Like, do I? I like, think we could, we could definitely drop one of Clues bombs for that. Like, um, I think especially. Dr. Maggie, come on now. Like, you know, I love you. Like, this is, you're speaking nothing, nothing but the truth. Okay. So help you God. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> I think especially when it comes to um, the, the role that we each play individually, again, it comes back to um, being aware, right? That, you know, you don't have to you know, you don't have to be donning a, a clan, a clan, um, you know, KKK regalia to to have to engage in actions that lead to um, to disparate um, outcomes, right? Um, that engage in actions that have a, a racist outcome. You don't have to be that. Like that's not how racism works, right? Um, so just being aware. Being aware enough that, you know, maybe it even moves you to discomfort that you have to acknowledge the fact that, you know, as an example, you're somebody who is, you know, overworked and underpaid working in the emergency department and um, somebody comes in 
um, in excruciating pain. And you have to acknowledge the fact that maybe just maybe um, folks before you and even yourself may, be, may decide, right, that this person who's telling you that they're in pain um, is not to be believed um, and therefore their pain is not addressed in the way that you would address the pain of someone who may look different. Um, and, um, and, and, and that was the, the beginning of Dr. Susan Moore's story, right? She came in um, to an emergency room. She was admitted um, with COVID-19 and you know, was in a lot of pain. And part of the issue was that, you know, you, you can't be in that much pain. Um, if somebody really reckoned with, you know, really thought about, you know, like if it came up, if it popped up on their electronic medical record, like, hey, I just want you to be aware that you need to think about the fact that you may underestimate, you know, um, this person's pain right? You may, you know, not believe that they're experiencing symptoms that they're telling you that they're experiencing um, as you would believe it for someone else, right? It would be nice if we had uh, an alert that popped up like that and if folks were just okay with being that uncomfortable. Um, I can't say that I'm hopeful, but, you know, I'll certainly work till my last breath to make sure that, you know, we get closer to something like, like that in general. And Dr. Gard, I mean, I'm listening to you and I'm just like, why is that a revolutionary idea that we could be exactly. that we could be imperfect, that we we are not egalitarian? And I mean it's sort of like an indoctrination that we are these like um artificially ideal types of healthcare providers that go out there and treat everyone the same. And the only thing that gets in our way, dag nabbit, is the system instead of our own minds, <laughs> like our own minds. Because I feel like that's actually pretty empowering to say, yeah, there's that systemic aspect to this, but there's also a part inside my own body, including my mind, that I can take control over, master a new set of skills, attitudes, learn some new knowledge, and I could change what I have control over, as opposed to externalizing everything to the system, which is a defense mechanism against your own moral responsibility to do better. Um, but it's like, why is that revolutionary? I have a three-year-old and I mean, can we be more like her? <laughs> like, it's like Exactly. Can we be more like, can we be more like the children? Like, I feel like the, you know, when we're in this society, you know, we're all, um, we're all learning you know, very similar lessons, right? Maybe not at home, but when like we're out with, you know, amongst other people, we're all learning very similar things. When we are watching TV, whether we like it or not, we're all learning something without, you know, this may not necessarily be formal education, but we're all learning the very same thing. I trained in the, um, you know, in the system of allopathic medicine, I too went to medical school and learned, right, that, you know, that, that Black people have, um, you know, uh, this is just, this is a, a, a technical term, but this is a lab, but Black people have a, um, a higher creatinine level, right, talking about kidney function, because they are just more muscular inherently. That's 
ridiculous. Like literally that that's a ridiculous concept and is rooted um, in this racist idea that black people are suited for physical labor. Same thing with, you know, how we um, evaluate the pulmon, you know, the, the lung function of folks, right? Um, you know, there's a, there's literally like a, a correction. There's literally like a button that you have to press when you're evaluating, you know, how much air somebody's able to take in and let out of their lungs. There's a button that you press if they're black because, and, and that itself is rooted in the idea that, you know, that, that black people have a, a lung capacity and function that's just, you know, a, different than, than people that are white. And when you think it, when you think about it, the idea is so ridiculous, right? But is but makes sense when you think about why it would be beneficial to have a thought process to for science to propagate this type of understanding. Um, so it's really, really important for us to um, to understand that we all are going to have you know, biases, we are all going, we all were brought up, you know, you know, those of us that, you know, were, um, were brought up and educated in, um, you know, the American allopathic, uh, and even osteopathic healthcare system. Um, we learn things in a certain way, but none of us really, you know, not a lot of us have kind of dug deep into, you know, why did, why is this okay? Like, why is this assumption okay? Um, we have to, we have to understand that we we all play a part. And back to Dr. Maggie's point, you know, the the opposite of of um, racist is not not racist. And that is, um, and I think that's something that is expressed by uh, Dr. Ibram Kendi in um, in a couple of his books, particularly how to be an anti-racist. Right. That on on the other side of the spectrum of of being you know, uh, a card carrying clan member racist, the other side of that is, is, is actively being anti-racist. And it's not enough to say, you know, well, I'm not burning crosses on somebody's lawn. So therefore I'm not a part of the problem. No, no, sis, bro, fam, that's, that's not enough. Um, we have to reckon with the fact that, you know, we've internalized a lot of the things that we are trying to root out of, you know, medical education, right? We've all internalized things that we're trying to root out of, you know, everything. Um, and that really just takes an element of just being a little bit comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah, I just dropped the mic after every question. Like I just, just sit and ponder. I, I forgot I was I was forgot I was on a podcast. <laughs> James, you need like a hundred mics. Did you how many did you bring? I'm just curious. Uh, I need to go get some more, clearly. <laughs> let's, let's talk about not just a black body, right? What is the overall mission? How did it come to be? I know I was able to look on the website and I was able to find out a lot more, but we'd love to hear from the founders. Let's go, Maggie. <laughs> Thank you for teeing me up, uh, Dr. Sabrina. Um, yeah, so just a quick snippet of how we got here. Um, and uh, you'll notice I'm pausing because I'm still thinking about Dr. Jess's question about why some of this stuff seems so radical, um, which is such a great question. But um, so 
as I've shared earlier in the intro, um, my family was directly impacted by the pandemic. Um, my father would contract the virus very early. My mother would also get it as well. My father was actually treated in the hospital and would die in the hospital. For the record, um, I make it clear that he died secondary to racism. He may have had COVID, but I could never know if he actually would have lived because he wasn't properly monitored. So he would go to what is known as a safety net hospital. Um, they didn't. I, I was there in the emergency room in the first 24 hours he was there. Um, they didn't have. They just it was just a war zone. That's how I describe it. Um, first time seeing up close and personal how bad the pandemic was and how much of the people who look like me were being impacted. Um, wasn't monitored, they ended up finding him down on the bathroom floor um, and that's what subsequently led to his death. And my mother, um, I would care for her at home with my sister while she was also fighting the virus and she refused to go in because she saw how hard it was for me to get information, for me to be updated, um, to hear anything about what was happening with his care in the hospital. Um, so ended up caring for her at home and ultimately um, the virus just wiped her out and she decided she wanted to die on her own terms. So basically became her hospice care because we couldn't get anyone in the house due to exposure. Um, and while in the midst of all of that, it was early on. And if you remember, we didn't even have um, racial data on mm -hmm. how the pandemic was impacting certain certain groups more than others. You know, it was going down hard in uh, Louisiana. No one was talking about it. Bad in Detroit, bad in New York, bad in, in Baltimore. But no one, were, if you think about it, these cities are known for their high proportions of, of Black and Brown communities, but no one was talking about it. So knowing my background as a physician, as a Black woman, to be able to share my story on social media and also share what was happening was one, a way to not be silenced. Um, it was one, a way to grieve publicly, but another way of activism to get people aware, especially in my surrounding community, that this is real. This is really happening and I need people to take precautions pretty seriously. So it initially started off as an awareness campaign as to, hey, the pandemic is real. Hey, we're dying. We're dying at disproportionate numbers. Take it seriously. Um, to eventually thinking, you know what? This isn't just about COVID. I knew these things or the framework of why we got to this point um, existed beyond the pandemic, way before the pandemic. Um, and how do we seize this moment to really think about change? And think about how we can actually create a system that actually thinks about healing first at radical, right? To actually center healing and healthcare, um, but also really thinks about the black community in mind. So that's really where it kind of transitioned in the fall and early parts of this year. And then I knew I couldn't do this work alone. So tapped into Dr. Gard and Dr. Isom to really um, re-envision how we want to move forward and how we center the conversation on the black community and addressing their needs. And my last comment will be, you know, you had the CDC director recently come out and say racism is a public health problem and we need to do something about it. And you're seeing all these institutions and um, platforms like finally name it. But we have to imagine that naming it is not going to be, that's the first battle. And yes, it's a part of a battle and a big war that we're trying to win, um, but that's not where it stops. This is just the beginning. And part of what Not Just a Black Body is about is how do we end up being a solution to this very problem? Um, because I'm not leaving it in the hands of those who are currently operating the healthcare system to know what to do. And it actually shouldn't even be in my hands. It should really be in the hands of the community. What do they want 
for their healing? How do they want us to see their humanity? How do they want us to give them what they need in their community to not only just be healthy, but to actually achieve wellness? That's not gonna come from us. We're gonna help facilitate that conversation. Our representation matters to help them build trust to have that conversation, but really it's about listening to them and amplifying their needs so they can actually get to what they need to have a wellness and health in their community. Yeah, I, I just love that, Dr. Cherry. Um, shout out to all of that. And uh, also just recognizing that the organization itself is rooted in the traumatic loss that of course was shaped by structural and cultural racism. Uh, and that's something that has to be honored repeatedly. Um, the thing I love about what you said is that it really does take the pressure off of us in, in a specific way because white supremacy culture encourages us to, to hoard power that we're supposed to know everything that's supposed to happen, that we have all the answers, that we don't figure things out, it's, it's our fault. But really giving the power to the community, sharing it with them, allowing them to inform what we do next as far as addressing the issues within our institution. I mean, that that's the kind of pressure I would love to take off my shoulders because I don't believe in that, that we have all the answers. And so the most exciting part of this for me, being a part of Not Just a Black Body, is that we can have different kinds of conversations bring different voices to the table, hand over the power that should have been in their hands in the first place. And then all of us can just leverage our respective strengths. And maybe my strength is just knowing what's written in a psychiatry textbook and my lived experience. Maybe it's not knowing how to transform the entire system on my own. And I'm absolutely okay with that. I just have to say how much I stand for these two women, Dr. Jessica, Dr. Sherry, I cannot be more proud and happy to be working with you two um, when it comes to um, trying our very best to advance um, the health, the wellness of um, Black communities, other minoritized communities. Um, I have nothing else to add um, to what you two just said, um, and I love you both. Do you all remember I think it was a Grammys when Alicia Keys and Jay-Z were singing Empire State of Mind and Lil Mama hopped on the stage. That's right. I sure do. <laughs> I feel like Lil Mama right now. Like I'm just with her arm with her arms crossed. That's yeah, right, yeah. girl. Okay. She's like, I belong here. That's right. Like I feel I like love what you two just Yeah. Yeah. That's too funny. I, I want to add to um to this conversation because I've been doing even in my own process of grieving and just um, going through the trauma, I'm just gonna name it, the trauma of last year on multiple fronts, um, not just as a daughter who's losing two parents or as a black physician who's seeing what's happening um, and saying, damn, I didn't know our system was that bad. Like you knew it was, but then you're watching it happen in front of you. And then also as a black woman, as you're watching what's happening in the world, um, I'm, I'm in my grief process as I've been asking myself so many questions. One thing that I'm, I'm constantly recentering on um, throughout examining where we are and how we move forward, both in our world and our society and in healthcare is this um, idea of humanism and the lack of hu our, the, the extent of our empathy when we're talking about humanism, when we talk about certain groups and how we need to acknowledge the limits that we have capped the humanism, depending on what the person looks like. And even with that, 
just even going deeper into it, people think about humanism and they automatically assume, well, you know, just seeing you as human and believing that you're human and also not making you superhuman um, in the context of black people where you, you, where people believe that we don't actually feel pain the same way. It's also understanding that our humanity is not just an isolated individual thing, that our humanity is also a community thing. And it's also, it's also dis, you disregard my humanity when you not only don't treat me the way I should be treated, but you fail to realize that what's happening in my community, whether it's police brutality, whether it's the fact that my black brothers and sisters are dying and can't drive without being anxious, whether it's the fact that um, my community is being hit with unemployment rates, which means they won't have health insurance, which means that they're uncovered and that their health is, is going to be worse. All of that also is a part of my humanity. And if you can't understand that watching that happen in my community, in my global community around me, impacts my well being, impacts my health, are you really watching me as human? And I think that is where we need to get to in healthcare to understand that it's not just the person in front of you, but this person, this black individual is existing in a, in a larger society that you may have them for 15 to 20 minutes, but their life is an interaction of how people perceive them and how people perceive their loved ones. And that if I'm sitting in front of you and I'm also scared about my son who's walking home from school and if whether or not he's gonna actually make it home alive and you don't, you don't acknowledge that, you don't see that, you don't acknowledge my everyday um, lived discrimination, then you're also still not seeing my humanity. And I, I think that is also a conversation that really needs to be had in healthcare. And the other part of it is if we're seeing that, what does healing look like? Because healing also looks like not only do you care about my health, but you also care about the oppressive forces that keep me down. And if you want me to be healed, if you're actually going to fight for my healing and be a part of that um, process, then you also have to equally be fighting with me during my visit, but be fighting outside with me as we work to get these oppressive forces off my neck, off my family, off my community, off my neighborhood. And if you're not in that fight, are you really fulfilling your responsibility as a healthcare worker? And I know that's a little brave, but you know what, why not? And if we don't get there, if we don't start talking about it in this way, could healthcare really be transforming itself? Or are we just, are we just lying? And I think these concepts that people can't, um, you know, people are going to go, what's the research or how do we, how do we, what's the evidence-based um, behind it? Uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, we'll, we'll always be, well, what's the research behind that? Um, people will go on that and, and use that against this conversation. But if we're not having these type of conversations, not just the disparities conversation, not just the numbers conversation, but if we're not having the humanity community, the healing conversation, then we're also not going to get anywhere in healthcare either. And, and my hope is with not just a black body that we'll also be having that conversation as well. Absolutely. Um, and just to add to that, it's really, um, it's really important that we think about, right? Like when I hear, when I hear you um, speaking, Dr. Sherry, you know, there are gonna be folks that are in, you know, that are in training that are faculty, you know, at academic institutions that, you know, are usually central in research that's conducted that says, you know, well, this is just not the job of a physician. This is, you know, it's not the job of the physician to think about the, 
sociopolitical factors that are literally impacting the health of the community that we serve. Um, and what we actually feel much more comfortable doing is providing sick care, right? It's not health care when everything that happens in someone's life um, contributes to, um, to poor health, right? When the air you breathe is toxic, when the water that you drink is toxic, when you can't be outside on your stoop or at the bodega or on the block without worrying that, you know, that a, an officer, you know, someone, an agent of the, you know, criminal legal system is going to hassle you and may even kill you. Um, all of that contributes to, to bad health. Um, and when you see somebody in the office as an individual provider, like you're seeing them at, like at the, at the end of all of that, right? So if all of that is a cascade, you're at the very end. If all of that is a totem pole, you're at the bottom of it. Um, you know, trying to lift them up out of everything that has contributed to bringing them down in the first place. Um, there are, you know, there are people that honestly believe that the role of physician um, is not to even think about any of those upstream factors. Um, and part of what the pandemic has taught me is that I am not okay with, um, you know, being at, this is what I called it for myself personally, being at the bottom of the totem pole, you know, providing sick care when I came into medicine to begin with to make my community healthy, to contribute to the health of my community. Um, so that is going to involve me being very loud and, be, and very obnoxious about the role of the academic medical center in you know, advancing policies that will actually make the communities that these academic medical centers are actually sitting in, right? Um, that will actually advance the health of those communities. That's what I feel the role of the institution should be. That's what I feel the role of the providers that are working within the institution should be. Because again, I happen to be somebody who, you know, am concerned about, you know, selfishly my own well-being, but also the well-being of, you know, my family, people that look like me, right? Um, so it's hard to think about you know, how, how the heck do you, um, how do you kind of reconcile, you know, working side by side with folks that just don't feel like that's their role? You just have to have a whole bunch of deep ancestral size prepared. Okay. Suggestion. I had heart palpitations, Dr. Gar, just listening to you introduce those kinds of physicians. And I mean, what makes you worthwhile? What makes you worthy of the title? And what makes you worthy of the income? if not to be centering the content that we're talking about here today. Yeah, I, I, and, I, and I don't have the answers per se, but I know that when I came, when I made the decision to go into medicine, for example, right? I didn't, I didn't go into medicine because I thought that, you know, I had some kind of glorious fluffy feeling about what it would be like to, um, you know, to be in the healthcare field. I think like really um, central to my personality as an individual is the fact that when I see 
things um, that I that make me uncomfortable. I want to be a part of um, what makes that better, right? And that's for better or for worse, but that's kind of like an individual trait that I've kind of realized about myself. So when I went into medicine, it was because I felt as though, man, this ain't right. Like, I mean, but I, you know, and I'm saying that full disclosure as somebody who, um, you know, I was insured, like my insurance, my medical insurance from the time that I was born until um, I started as a resident physician was um, New York Medicaid. That's, that's, that was my insurance. Um, so that means that the healthcare that I had access to um, was limited to folks um, and offices and practices and hospitals that accepted Medicaid insurance, um, you know, from the time that I was a child, it, it was not a pleasant experience for me. So um, it was, it was actually experiencing that, that made me say, you know what, this is, I don't like, I don't like what's going on over here. I bet you that I can figure out a way that this can be done better. So let me go ahead and put myself into this system and be an agent of change, right? Um, until you realize like, you know what? The system is actually set up in a way that you can, you can go in as an agent of change and you can literally be kind of exhausted and stifled out of that kind of, you know, out of that feeling. So, um, yeah, it's 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 a strange it's a strange position to be in. It's a strange feeling to have. Um, just kind of knowing that, you know, you you go into this thinking that knowing that something has to change, knowing that the system is flawed, and that your sole purpose is to make um, is to figure out exactly what needs to be changed within the system so that things can be better on, you know, on the back, you know, down the road, right? Um, I didn't, I didn't sign up, you know, um, for lack of a better word, to be at the bottom of the totem pole, um, just, you know, kind of shaking my head whenever I know that something upstream is causing, you know, harm to, um, to the folks that I care for and care about. Um, so, so yeah, I don't know what I meant. I don't know what my point was, but, um, so many points to make, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, I think what's, what's great about, um, not just a black body and what I hope that my role, um, within the organization, um, becomes and, you know, continues to be is, um, identifying those up, those very, very, very upstream factors that um, that lead to um, real harm to large portions of the population uh, that I, you know, identify as my own, and that is, um, and that's Black people. Which absolutely, Dr. Gard, have to be at the center of transformations within medicine as an institution because we never have been. I mean, we've only been centered as something to be used and discarded. And as hard as that is to say, it's the truth. Why not center us to transform in the ways that would benefit everybody else? I mean, it would- Because lit literally everybody else benefits. Exactly, exactly. So if only they would listen to us and so many others who've been screaming that message for centuries, but maybe now is the time, or at least I hope so. I think, so there's multiple things that could be derived from that too, right? So um, I, I, 
I'm a little different when I talk about how I came to medicine, but I think it's an important context to bring up is one, given my cultural background, like certain professions are guarded more, more highly, right? So my parents were Haitian immigrants, they come to this country. So of course they wanna talk about their daughter being a doctor. And my brother was often in the healthcare system very early because um, being sick when he was young. So it was like one of my first exposures um, saying to, which gave me the idea of even imagining myself as a doctor. But one thing I will say is I did not understand the systemic issues at the root of health much later, even in my medical training, because even before coming into medicine, yes, I went, in, went in, into it with altruistic views of, oh, I want to help, you know, um, vulnerable populations or work in the underserved, which is usually the quote sentence that most students use when they're interviewing. But you, but you've also been you've also been perpetuated a stereotype in your mind. Like these communities are worse off because they chose to make a decision to not eat healthy. Ooh. These communities are worse because they don't care about their health. These communities are worse because they're, they're a language barrier. So actually, if I can call myself out, I came in here with a savior complex. Like I, I can come in here and I can do better and I can fix the system and be, be a part of the solution, which although my intent intentions were really to actually have impact. The rooting of those intentions were racist, actually, um, and, 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 and based on white supremacist um, ideologies that make us blame the victim without acknowledging the system that put that, that community at a disadvantage. So it really was, you know, going through medical school and watching how we talk about certain communities. And I was in near Camden County. So it's how we talk about Camden in lectures, how we talk about black patients in lectures, how we talk about um, Spanish speaking patients in lectures. Now what's worse is the fact that I'm watching this happen and saying, mm, this don't sound right. This is actually not the way we should talk about people, but because the system is so oppressive, I can't even speak truth to power about how that doesn't feel right. Right. So now I'm in this system. I'm learning in a certain way. We're blaming the community for why their health is worse and not acknowledging the systemic forces and policies that have implemented those conditions to be present. And it really wasn't until residency, as I'm watching the same thing over and over, the same people getting admitted to the hospital, the same patterns that I really start asking myself deeper questions and actually calling out my own intentions, calling out like, have I done enough of my homework to realize that even the way you were taught about how you talk down to people, how you label people is racist right? Like it is, is problematic and how you have to call out even yourself. And quite often the system doesn't allow us to do that because now you're scared about um, who's going to give you an evaluation. What does that mean for your training? What does that mean for your career thereafter? So I, I also think that we have to name that um, and name that even when people come in thinking they want to do good in medicine or play a part of it, you're actually coming in with very racist ideologies as to why the problem exists. And, and the hope is not only are we naming these issues and naming them beyond social determinants of health, I'm sick of that word now, and that phrase, I'm absolutely sick of it because now it's become a phrase where we still do the same thing. We blame the community, we blame the person, but where we actually say, well, then what are the conditions that allowed these social determinants of health factors to exist they where they are? And I like how, um, uh, Daniel Dawes puts it, what are the political determinants of health that have determined the conditions for this community that has made it really hard for them to be well, for them to be healthy. And I think that is what we have to talk about. It's just not naming it. It's actually what's the root 
Like what is the root cause to why this exists and understand that we have to even change the framework by which we speak of these and speak of these communities in how we train our, our, our students and our residents and our interns. And that's the best part um, that I feel about kind of stepping back from my um, traditional and usual role as a full-time employee in an academic medical center and saying like, you know, no, I need to um, actually, like I, I need to free up space. I need to free up mental bandwidth so that I, so that we can think about and talk about and, um, and really work through solutions because, you know, it is about, you know, uh, structural determinants of health, political determinants of health, you know, don't, um, you know, I think in, in medicine, what winds up happening is that um, folks will kind of finger wag uh, at a person who um, only has access to a certain, you know, to, to certain types of food, you know, like living in a food desert, no supermarket around for, you know, blocks or miles, um, and, and then finger wag when, you know, they can't, you know, or they're not maintaining a diet that, you know, keeps their, you know, that, that doesn't contribute to a high blood pressure or, or a high blood sugar, you know, it's something deficient within this individual person, right? That, that's the, that's the problem. And that is how we learn to practice medicine, right? Um, and that is what I had to constantly, um, bring attention to within myself to say, no, right? Like you, you can't do that when everything around um, individuals um, is, you know, constructed by policies and procedures and 100% um, and contribute to, um, you know, how, what decisions, what decisions are made. And I think that's the best part about kind of stepping back from the practice of medicine at the individual level and um, thinking about um, health policy um, and how we can, um, how we can transform policy, how we can use policy to advance the health and wellness um, of human beings because we're in the business of, um, of promoting health in general. Um, and while I may have signed up to do that at the individual level, I recognize that my responsibility is and actually has always been um, to the community that made me. Um, and that happens to be um, the black community specifically um, and uh, my minoritized communities um, in general. The moment you start talking policy, you start talking about language. So like my ears peaked, but. That's all I care about. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we need policy because people take forever to change. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, and I, I'm all for changing people. That's my bias. I enjoy. I'm not. What, God bless you. I facilitate. I enjoy facilitating that change process, but at the same time, look, people change often when forced to change, and that's why the whole policy piece from Dr. Gard is so important because the policies we have right now are allowing the status quo to sustain itself, uh, and that's why we're not being held accountable in the ways that we need to be. Um, but things like value-based care coming down the pipeline is really interesting because uh, that might force us to change. But I would love to see actual anti-racist policies being suggested, proposed within institutions. And one very specific example of that, that actually happened before the pandemic, was just protecting us as healthcare workers from racism in the, in the environment. 
like actually having a policy for when a patient talks out the side of their neck, offering racial slurs or making bigoted requests for changing providers, actually having a policy that recognizes our humanity and our legal rights is an anti-racist thing that could happen at the institutional level. So they're out there, but just how common and popular they are, that's another story. I just got, I just got goosebumps. And I think when we think about policy too, we have to think about it. I, I, I want to demystify it. I think people hear policy and they automatically think it has to be a federal and state level, but policy, I mean, in its simplest form, policy is uh, a set of regulations and standards that you set forth in a given setting. So when we talk about policy, this is, of course, yes, we'd like it to be standardized where it's like a federal mandate or even a state mandate, but I think when you think about the influence you have, and this is for other practitioners, it's policy even within your institution, within your practice. Like I heard a doctor talking about how, um, you know, within a practice in the last few years, she's been able to help dismantle how, you know, for those who had private insurance, whether it be through their employer or whatever, they, they had a whole different system of how they um, made their appointments versus those who were uninsured or Medicaid patients, they would just bulk interview. So everybody's, you're scheduled at eight and then you come in and you have to show up that day because your appointments that day, it's eight o'clock and then first come first served. Like who does that? Right. And that's a, that was a practice policy. And as you can imagine, a person who's on Medicaid, who already is struggling and probably can't even afford to miss a day of work, but now you just sit there for three hours waiting for your name to be called, right? So I use this as an example as it's not just the big state federal policy. We're talking about day-to-day -day policy, about interactions that happened in practices, in institutions, in hospitals that need to be discussed. And then I'll even go a little further and say, we really have to be thinking about policy when we're thinking about the healthcare startup world and the tech world, which has been booming since last year um, and has made a lot of money. Um, as people have seen the expansion of telehealth and the different capabilities you're able to do. But if there's not policy implemented and it not actually approach with an anti-racist lens, we're actually going to perpetuate health disparities, um, especially when you talk about access and who's now going to have access to this technology, who's now going to be able to go somewhere and seek out help um, and have all the resources. So this idea of policy has to be like thought about in every way, shape or form in every industry, whether we're talking about pharma, healthcare delivery, healthcare startups, the tech world, we have to really be thinking about it in very nuanced ways and at all levels. And like Dr. Jessica said, with the lens of how do we make sure these policies also have an intentional anti-racist agenda as well too. So I realize I've kept you a lot longer than I planned, but I must say that I really appreciate the conversation. How can people keep up with you all individually? I know I've been able to keep up with Dr. Isom um, on Clubhouse, and I actually just followed the rest of you on Twitter and Clubhouse. How can people learn more about not just a Black body? Um, how can they contribute? Just how do people keep in touch? Well, we're certainly encouraging folks to um, go to our website. Our website was relaunched um, as of um, a couple months ago, February of 2021. Um, it's www.notjustablackbody.com. Uh, we're encouraging everybody to sign up 
um, sign up for our email list um, so that they can uh, stay updated um, in terms of what we're doing um, and contribute um, in any way um, they uh, may have capacity uh, to contribute to um, advancing uh, the cause of really centering the health and wellness um, of uh, the Black community um, in, in general. Um, I think that's something that's been um, neglected for a long time. And we wanna finally put, um, put that in the center. So uh, once again, our website is www.notjustablackbody.com. You can follow us on Twitter, um, also on Instagram at uh, notjustablackbody. Um, we encourage folks to follow us on Clubhouse. Um, we do have, um, you know, a little house, a little club, a little clubhouse, um, not just a black body. Um, so please follow us on, um, on all of those. Please follow the organization on, on those platforms um, as well. Um, and you could also feel free to um, follow us as individuals if you so choose, but um, more important is following the organization and the work. Yeah, I agree. Thank you, um, Dr. Sabrina, for sharing how to reach out to Not Just a Black Body. Um, and there's a contact form too. So if people are interested in having us come out to talk to their organization um, or host any town halls, which we're going to be talking about more in this um, second half of the year in regards to how we're going to be doing more community outreach, uh, please reach out to us. And um, privately, people can find me on Twitter Instagram and Clubhouse, um, all of it, Dr. Magdala Sherry on all those platforms. Um, and specifically, um, I did a podcast interview with the Commonwealth Fund Fellowship um, and the Commonwealth Fund organization directly on their DOS podcast, which talks more about not just the Black body and as well as the exact specifics of um, my family's tragedy as well. Um, and invite us to speak. I know I do speaking and Dr. Jessica does speaking as well at um, different organizations. We are completely okay um, with having these tough conversations. We believe in the power of speaking these truths in the rooms and, and places that matter. So it can really transform how organizations, institutions, and groups are thinking about the policies they plan on imp implementing and the communities they serve. So uh, please feel free to reach out to us um, if you're thinking of having us come in and, and be a part of that conversation. Yeah, just to echo that, I'll say all the things that you can't say. Um, for compensation. Um, and I will speak truth to power, just as Dr. Sherry does and Dr. Gard does as well. Um, because a lot of times within organizations, because of the oppressive culture, people can't say what needs to be said. They can't even lay out a roadmap for what needs to be done. Uh, and I'm just so excited to be a part of this trio because in these conversations, we're always doing both, speaking truth to power and saying things that sometimes others can't say. And I think we can really offer that value to whatever space we're invited to. I've got a few places in mind already. So I, I'll, I'll be reaching out. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for having us and just facilitating this conversation. It was great. So this episode goes out to the folks who use hashtag med Twitter and it's time for us, even as I started the episode talking about George Floyd and the fact that it's been a year, where are we at now with those anti-racist statements and where are we now with the injection of capital and dollars that were to follow to ensure that 
black voices were being amplified and heard across a variety of systems. I, I just want to do a, a check in with that because the hashtags are great. Um, the camaraderie that you see on social media is exciting, but it, it's always the action. Let, let's get to that action to see the types of changes that are necessary to transform the way that we experience healthcare. Because at the rate that we're going, if you just look at the disparities that are evident, we're going to continue to broaden that gap until we actually take some form of action. I want to give a shout out to all three doctors who who just the conversation was so enlightening and so enriching for even my own life. And I hope that you all appreciate it as well. If you have concepts or work or need insight and perspectives, please visit them, not just to blackbody.com. And also realize you need to pay for their opinion because you're soliciting the expertise of individuals. And that's not free. And they, they didn't ask me to say that, but I, I'm just going to throw that out there. If you want something, you should probably expect to pay for it. Speaking of, I announced last week, or at least on the last episode, that I had something special that I wanted to introduce you all to. And so if you're following on Instagram, that's at Equity Matters Podcast, you saw that I announced the Equity Matters Social Justice Academy. And so this has been a pet project for quite some time now, just something I wanted to introduce to really train folks on what it means to do this type of work. And I'm still building out modules. I'm really excited for the way that it's coming together. I think it's going to be a really rich experience for folks that you're not going to get traditionally in any classroom. And so just stay tuned for that. Stay posted. Sign up for our listserv. That will be the best way to stay informed because when the registration drops, I want to make sure that you're in there. And so more details to come on that. Follow us on all the social media platforms. You know the usual drill at Equity Matters PC on Twitter. And just continue to do the work. I mean, I don't know how many times I've, I've said that on the conclusion of episodes, but don't feel dismayed. Don't feel frustrated or you can feel it, but don't stay there. Like we, we have things that we want to accomplish. And I'm seeing these moments where I see the light at the end of the tunnel. And there's wins that we are making that we need to celebrate and we need to keep going. And so as you're listening to this episode and you're preparing for whatever's next in your day, remind yourself, of course, that equity matters and the work that we do matters. Take care. <laughs>